All right, good morning, everyone. All right, so if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Genesis 35 this morning. So if you're uh, new or visiting with us, um, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and we are um, at chapter 35 this morning. So you can find that if, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 29 and find that text there. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then, then we'll dive into our study for this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the privilege and the freedom to worship you together. We thank you for your amazing grace. We do not deserve to come boldly before you and call you our Father. You have given us everything, and all of us by nature have taken what you've given to us and used it for our own purposes. We've wanted your gifts, and we've rejected you as the giver. We've all worshipped and served created things rather than you, the creator. We've looked for satisfaction and joy and peace and life everywhere but with you. So we deserve to be cast away. We deserve to be rejected. And um, we deserve your just and righteous punishment. But we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we thank you that you have showed it, have shown it all throughout human history. We see it in the book of Genesis over and over and over again. We see it ultimately in the gift of your son. We thank you that we can sing, Christ is mine forevermore because of your amazing grace, and I pray that you would thrill us with your grace this morning. I pray that we would see how kind and patient and merciful and gracious you are. You are a God of rescue and salvation. You are also a God of renewal and revival. You are willing to give mercy and grace and help over and over and over and over again. So many of us, maybe all of us, in some way or other, need your grace this morning. We need renewal. Maybe we need the renewal that David prayed for after his grievous sin in Psalm 51. Create a clean heart, O oh God, in me and renew a right spirit within me. Where we need that kind of renewal, would you bring it this morning, Lord? Lord, where we are cold and flat, would you breathe new life into us and cause us to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, that praise and thanksgiving would well up, that we wouldn't forget your benefits but that we would rehearse them, how you have forgiven our sins and, and redeemed our life from the pit 
and how you crown our lives with steadfast love and mercy and you satisfy those with good. You satisfy us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. You can renew our strength. Those who wait for you shall renew their strength. So where we are weak and our arms and are drooping at our sides spiritually. We're just drifting, apathetic. Lord, would you renew our strength? Would you revive us? Lord, where we've allowed the world to shape and mold and influence us too much, we need you to come in and guard us from being conformed to this world. Lord, this morning, may we be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And where some of us may be weary because of these broken bodies that just keep wearing away and wasting away, would you help us not to lose heart by renewing us inwardly? Help us to realize that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory for us that's beyond all comparison. Help us to look to the unseen and eternal and not the visible transient things that so quickly pass away. So Lord, come and renew us. Lord, we do ask that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts. So work among us by your spirit and do that cleansing work. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you may have noticed, I prayed quite a bit for renewal. That kind of language is found in the Bible a lot of different places. Um, and this text is all about renewal. So think about the issue of renewal. Where do we hear about renewal? Maybe renewal of vows, right? Couples renew their vows sometimes after so many years. Why do people do that? Well, maybe that couple didn't have um, the money or there was some issue where they didn't have the wedding or the honeymoon that they would have loved to have, so they're going to renew their vows and then have that awesome honeymoon that they always wish they could have had originally. Or maybe they're just hopeless romantics and they just want to say, I still do. Or more often than not, the marriage has suffered its fair share or more of turmoil and strife. Maybe the couple's made it through kind of a turbulent time and they want to public, publicly renew their covenant maybe especially because of the behavior of, of one or both of the spouses, and that behavior shook the security of the covenant, infidelity or something like that. Well, Genesis 35 is all about God renewing the covenant with Jacob, not because of God's infidelity, but because of Jacob's infidelity. So it's not hard to see why this was a timely thing for um, Jacob. It's a tremendous mercy to Jacob. And for sinners like you and me, if we're honest with ourselves, like Chris said, we're messy people. It's really encouraging to see God's faithfulness with somebody like Jacob because we can be encouraged that he will be faithful with messy people like us. 
So, um, in chapter 32, just a brief little catch you up to speed on the context here. Chapter 32, Jacob had fled from his shrewd and exploitative father-in-law Laban, right? He was glad to be out from under Laban's control, but his brother Esau was on his way to meet him. And the last he had seen Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. So even though a number of years had elapsed in between their last encounter, Jacob is understandably pretty fearful of this meeting in coming up in chapter 33. So the night before Jacob encountered Esau, again, this is chapter 32, he encountered someone else. God came down in the form of a man and wrestled with Jacob. And in the end, God changed Jacob's name and he blessed him. He changed his name from Jacob, which means something like cheat or deceiver, usurper, okay, to Israel, which means he strives with God. So this was a turning point for Jacob in chapter 32. It seems like faith is actually growing in this patriarch. Jacob does meet Esau, and instead of finding anger and vengeance and death, he finds peace and acceptance. So it seems that things are headed in the right direction, but then along comes chapter 34. That's what we looked at last week. Jacob was supposed to head to Bethel to fulfill his vow that he had made to God back in chapter 28. And instead, he halts his pilgrimage outside the city of Shechem among the Canaanites. The Canaanites were morally corrupt. They were spiritually bankrupt people. So it was really dangerous. It was an unwise move on the part of Jacob to stop his pilgrimage there. And his daughter Dinah ended up paying for it. She was raped by the prince of the land. And then he wanted to marry her. But Dinah's brothers deceived that prince and his father. They ended up attacking the city, killing all the males, and plundering the city. And Jacob is just pathetically passive through all of that in chapter 34. So not only was his daughter violated on account of his negligence, but now his sons have gone way beyond the bounds of justice, and his clan will now have a reputation. So you can imagine if Shechem has any allies, if the city of Shechem has any allies, then Jacob now has some enemies. So he had clearly sinned against God. He may have wondered, I mean, just put yourself in his shoes. He may have wondered if he's just a ruined man at this point. Like, I just totally blew it. It's over. So what would you expect God to say at that point? Especially if you were here last week and you, ugh, the mess that's present in chapter 34. What would you expect? Depart from me. You're on your own now, buddy. You are cursed, you unfaithful fool. But God had made a covenantal promise to Jacob. When he was fleeing from his brother Esau, he stopped for the night outside of a city named Luz, and he went to sleep, put a little rock under his head, I guess, for a pillow. And he dreamed that there was this stairway reaching to heaven, and there were angels ascending and descending the stairway. And the Lord said to him in Genesis 28, 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all 
the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God made a promise, and God keeps his vows. So God comes to Jacob and initiates here in chapter 35 a renewal of their covenantal relationship. So the failure, the infidelity was certainly not on God's part, but he nonetheless mercifully, graciously initiates the renewal with Jacob. So point number one, covenant renewal, covenantal renewal. And we're going to see this twice over. First in verses 1 to 8. All right? So page 29 there in the Bible in the pew, if you're using that, Genesis 35.1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God didn't wait for Jacob to get his act together before he would help him. He acted proactively, mercifully, graciously, not because Jacob deserved it, but because of his promise and his grace. Once God did act, I mean, you can imagine, Jacob is just, there's so much wreckage because of his sin. And, I mean, can you imagine how encouraging it is that God comes to you and he says, come on, keep going. I'm with you. I'm going to fulfill my promise. So Jacob said to his household, he'd been such a terrible spiritual leader. And what does he do here? He responds. He said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Remember how Rachel had stolen Laban's household gods when they fled? See that back in chapter 31? And then in the last chapter, they plundered the Shechemites, right? So they probably took valuable, you know, these little gold things and amulets and charms and idols and whatever. So all this stuff needs to just be put away. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. It's like a total shift from the ugly, wretched stuff in chapter 34 to chapter 35, and it all starts with the initiative of God to rescue him, to intervene. I mean, how about this for a summary of Jacob's life? The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. <laughs> he was in constant distress, and a lot of it was self-inflicted, but God was with him and delivered him. So this isn't a history lesson, folks. This is, this is the God that we're dealing with. So anytime you see his faithfulness and his mercy and his kindness and his grace in the life of Jacob, we can say, oh, oh that's really good news because that's who I'm dealing with. That's who's dealing with me. So even the family responds here, verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob buried them, hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. 
He did not put this stuff on Facebook Marketplace or eBay to get the money for it. So this is probably some valuable stuff, right? He just needs to bury it, and they need to move on. Cast off the idols and move on with God. Verse 5, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So again, last week, Jacob, in his response to his sons, just murdering all the males in the city of Shechem, he says, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. This is 34, verse 30. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So we're going to have this reputation Again, if Shechem's got any allies, we're toast. We've got enemies. But again, God promised. And he's going to keep his promise. So he protects Jacob and his company. Not because they deserved it, but because of God's covenantal mercy and grace. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar. He followed through and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his, his brother. So he had called it Bethel originally when he was there. And now he adds El Bethel. So rather than house of God, it's God's house of God the God of the house of God. So it seems that Jacob goes from being focused on a place where he encountered a deity to being focused on the person of God who has been with him all along. You see, Bethel means house of God. That's a place, oh, this thing happened. This God, you know, met me. Now he's talking about the person. El Bethel. That's what this is all about. It's not just about an encounter. It's about a person. He had learned that God wasn't just some local tribal deity. This was the living God. So all of this was about the God who showed up, not just the place, because this God was with him all over the place, wherever he went. Hamilton, um, commentator, summarizes it well. He says, God is now first. His house is second. The place is second. The person is first. Verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this Jacob cycle in Genesis. You know, we went through Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob and his story, his part in the story is coming to a close. And the deaths that we encounter here are going to signal that transition. There's three deaths that are mentioned this is the first one, Rebecca's nurse. So it's signaling this transition. And in chapter 37, it's going to shift, and the focus is going to go on to Joseph um, for the rest of the book. All right, so let's just step back and reflect on a few things that we've seen in this section. First off, initiative and response. Okay, so God takes gracious initiative. He makes the first move. And this is his pattern again and again and again. It's his glory. This is God's glory. It is really good news that this is true. So it's the pattern all over the Bible because this is who God is. He's merciful and gracious. So 1 John, 
we love because he first loved us. Or Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. From Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you, Adam? He comes down, takes the initiative. To the last sinner saved before Jesus returns, God takes the initiative. He seeks and saves the lost. He doesn't wait for us to find our way back to him. Anybody thankful for that? (laughs) He doesn't wait for us to climb up to him. He comes looking for us. He takes the initiative. And that's not just true for the first time that he shows up in our lives. He does it over and over and over again. Aren't you glad? I mean, we, we sung it. Come thou fount. We're prone to wander. We feel it. How many times has God rescued you? Aren't you glad for his rescue, he, his deliverance, his intervention? He, he comes after us like a good shepherd, and he brings us home. He brings us back. I mean, why has that song stood the test of time? Because it captures so well our experience and the good news of God's gracious initiative. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And then, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So this morning, where are you at? Are you wandering? Well, what do you think you're doing here for? Why are you here? (laughs) Why is this the passage? It's because the loving Father is drawing us back in. He's taking initiative. He's bringing us in, bringing us close. Same Father that sent Jesus to wandering sinners like you and me every day is drawing us in. He's bringing us back. We drift and he brings us back. Or maybe you've never come home. And again, what are you here for? Maybe the good shepherd is coming after you like a wandering sheep to bring you home for the first time. You can come home today. He can rescue you today. So if you're even aware, like in a fresh way of your wandering and just thinking how foolish it is, and he's already at work to seek and to save you, to pick you up and carry you like a good shepherd and bring you home. So whether it's for the first time or for the 500th time, We can respond and participate in covenant renewal, which leads us to the second point here, consecration and obedience. We saw how Jacob responded, right? He calls his household to get rid of their idols and consecrate themselves. Idolatry contaminates our souls. So sin not only makes us guilty, it also makes us filthy. So in covenant renewal, God not only forgives us, he also cleanses us. Remember 1 John 1, 9? A lot of us probably have it memorized. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is only one true God, and we are to have no other gods before him. So we sung it. We sung it as a prayer. Did, did we mean it? 
Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Are there any idols that you, that I need to cast down? We should not lift our souls to any other substitute gods, any other functional Savior. So is there anything you're holding on to that God wants you to cast aside, that His Spirit is convicting you of right now? Oh, like, you almost like don't even want to, you want to stiff arm the Holy Spirit right now? Anything? If there's something like that, that's exactly what God wants you to throw down. So I heard someone recently ask these three questions to identify the idols in our lives. I think there's a really simple, memorable way. What gets you up? What gets you going? Like, what are you living for, you know? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you down? (laughs) What, if you don't get it, can really discourage and depress you? And then what gets you through? What gets you up? What gets you down? What gets you through? You can see how the answer to that should be God, 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 right? But oftentimes it's I'm really after, you know, the approval of other people. Money, comfort, security. What gets you through? We self-medicate. You see? So if there's other stuff that's getting us up, getting us down, if we don't get it, getting us through, that's the stuff we need to cast off buried under the terebinth, whatever that is. I don't know what a terebinth is, but. So we gave this book out a couple weeks ago. You Don't Get Your Own Personal Jesus by J.D. Greer. Okay, great little book. And we encouraged everybody to read it, right? Has everybody read it? Read it. And as you're reading it, you're praying, Lord, who should I give this to? Right? (laughs) So maybe you're still reading, and you're praying for who you should give it to. Um, So let me just give you a little quote if you haven't run across this yet. Um, But again, I would encourage you, if if you weren't here that day we gave them out, there's still some copies left on the table in in the lobby, and you can grab one and take it with you. All right? So here's what he says on page 19. Problems in our behavior always trace back to corruption in our worship. St. Augustine called stress, worry, anxiety, strife, jealousy, and dissatisfaction smoke rising from the altars we've erected to our false gods. Ouch. Trace the trail of this smoke back to its source, and you'll likely find a distorted or incomplete view of God or, we would add, an idol. Like the children of Israel, we go searching for a God to better suit our felt needs, but end up drowning in a sea of fear, despair, and moral chaos. Our reshaped gods, whom we hoped would bring us security and comfort, are utterly incapable to give us the love, fulfillment, and assurance for which we yearn. God created us for himself. Gods of our own making will never do the job. They are not God enough. Like the children of Israel, we have to choose which God to pursue. An infinite God who will sometimes confuse us and contradict us, or a small God that neither satisfies nor saves us. So when God is calling us to cast down 
our idols. He is calling us to cast down everything that's so small that can never satisfy or save us because he wants to give us himself because he can save and he does satisfy. You can see how this is a daily thing. This kind of need for renewal and repentance and casting down things that, are, that compete for his place in our hearts. It's a daily thing. But it can also happen in a powerful way when God moves. Anybody want to see revival in Wilmington? Is everybody awake? I just asked a question. That's like a pretty important question. I don't know. Does anybody want revival to happen in Wilmington? Okay, good. Um, we could be praying for that. What happens when revival strikes? The ordinary operation of the Spirit just goes into hyperdrive, and stuff that happens maybe here and there happens like magnified. So when I was at Wheaton, Back in the early 90s, there was a revival that hit in Wheaton in 1994. I remember I was there. And actually started at some other colleges, and some. what happened was kids from this college would go to another college and kind of give testimony of what God was doing. And then the same thing would happen there. And you know what the pattern was? Like crazy confession of sin publicly like without fear of what people are going to think. And people were just taking their idols and smashing them, as it were. In fact, sometimes there was even, I remember one night, there was even like a pile of stuff that just, stuff that, you know, was leading people astray and they just wanted to get rid of it, kind of like buried under the terebinth, you know? So, what, let's look in. What idols are we clinging to? What do we need to cast away? Give us clean hands. Give us a pure heart. Let us not lift our souls to another. So God has to make the first move, and he has, and he does over and over again. In fact, let me just insert something here. Maybe this would be encouraging to you, because sometimes I just don't think we connect the grace of God to everyday life enough. Have you ever felt like no one ever initiates with me? I don't have any real friends. I remember a friend of mine who was kind of testing even a friendship, and it seemed like he was always initiating the texts and the getting together, and so he just stopped for a while and then just, just went radio silent for a long, long, long time. And that was kind of hurtful because he thought, oh, maybe I've been driving this the whole way along. Maybe, you've, maybe you can resonate with that. How about hospitality? Maybe you've initiated, initiated, and no, oh, it just doesn't seem. I remember feeling this pretty acutely in high school during a season. Here's why I bring that up. God has taken the loving, faithful, friendly, kind, thoughtful first move with you over and over and over again, and he's going to keep doing it. So even if you are alone, you're not alone. And guess what? We've spurned him more times than others will ever spurn us. So God's made the first move. 
and then we respond. It's, it's a reflex response to his grace to rid the house of idols. Remember last week's fighter verse? Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, my heart, my mind, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I, I got blind spots. Like, show me the hurtful, grievous, you know, dangerous way if I'm following it because I want to see it. I want to repent and I want to be walking in the way everlasting. I want to be following you. So if there's stuff we need to cast down, cast away, lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily entangle so that we can run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So this leads us to the third kind of subpoint there, true worship. God wants our hearts. He wants true and purified worship, not because he's some like celestial maniac, egomaniac, you know, that loves for people to tell him how great he is. No. We all praise what we love. We praise what we enjoy. And he knows that the only thing that will ever satisfy us is him. The only one who can ever bring us true life and peace and joy is him. So if he lets us be satisfied with anything less than himself, he's not loving us. So I think Greer kind of alluded to it. Augustine said, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So Jacob called his household, let's cast everything away in order to worship God in sincerity and truth. Built an altar and they worshiped God. So from hearts that had responded to that grace. So I hope that it's not true that we need to hear Jesus' warning. If we do, it's, it's so that we can turn. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship. We don't want to be that people, right? We want to be people who worship in spirit and in truth like Jesus was talking with the woman at the well. And obviously there's hope for anybody because she was a mess. She was a messy person, and God is pursuing her to create a worshiper who would worship in spirit and in truth. And that's exactly what happened in her life. God is a God of grace. He takes the initiative. We respond. He is God alone. So we've got to cast down our idols and consecrate ourselves to pure devotion to him. That's at the heart of true worship. And in case we didn't get this pattern of God's initiative and our response, here it comes again in verses 9 to 15. Covenant renewal part 2. God appears to Jacob again, appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Sounds like the blessing on Abraham and Isaac. And God's confirming the blessing that, God, that he gave in that wrestling match in chapter 32. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Again, another gracious confirmation. God had already changed his name. But Jacob had seriously failed the last chapter. So this reaffirmation of the new name, that is really good news. New identity. He still is God's. It's good news. Verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So the same promise is given to, to Abraham, you know, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
chapter 17, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Kings are going to come from you. This is actually given the same promise to Jacob. Verse 12, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So again, initiative and response. God makes the first move again. He blesses Jacob again, despite his failures. He reaffirms the covenant. He reaffirms Jacob's identity, new identity. And then Jacob responds. He sets up a pillar and pours out an offering. It's worship again in sincerity and gratitude. So you and me, we fail again. We blow it. We wander. We screw up. We stumble. We fall. What do you do when you've blown it? When you fail. I think often our responses fall into one of these four categories. We feel bad, we try harder. That's one. We feel bad, we compare to others. Well, at least I'm not that bad. We feel bad, we focus on the good things that we're doing. Well, at least I'm doing this. We feel bad, we beat ourselves up. I mean, I'm guilty. And oftentimes we just feel bad, beat ourselves up, and move on. <laughs> and we perpetuate our gracelessness because we're just, where's the grace in that to actually change? No, this isn't the way of the covenant. Our security is not with our performance. Whose I am is what it's based on. Who I am, identity, is based on whose I am. So Jacob belongs to God. God has in covenant with him. And so he takes the initiative, reaffirms his identity, and Jacob responds with worship from that grace. So God does the same thing with us. He reminds us in his word, you are a new creation in Christ. I mean, how many times do you screw up and fail and you feel like, is this who I am? And if you just keep focusing on that, you're going to just keep spiraling. But you can listen to what God says about who we are. We are crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, me, and gave himself for me. We're beloved sons and daughters. So God reiterates the promises that are Jacob's, and he does the same thing for us. He takes the initiative, and we can respond to that gracious reaffirmation. So think about it this way. Do you think it was any sweeter? He had already heard some of these promises before. Do you think it was any sweeter that he heard these promises after all his screw-up, screw-ups in chapter 34? Has that ever happened? Where you know something's sweet, and then you really screw up, and oh, I'm so glad that's true. It's even sweeter. We don't have time for it, but John Newton, you know, the slave trader, wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this thing called The Advantages of Remaining Sin. It's like, why does God let us have so much sin that we still struggle with, and why do we struggle so much? And, and he wrote this thing on why it's actually full of advantages to us. <laughs> I'll put it on the blog 
um, so you can read it. It's awesome. Let me just, I'm sorry, I'm going to just share maybe a, a couple little things. Let me see if I can just pick something out of here so I'm not reading the whole thing. Um, Okay, so this goes along with what I was just saying. After a long experience of our own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of our weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, we find that none of these can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes more and more precious to our souls. We love much because much have we been forgiven. We dare not we will not ascribe anything to ourselves because all we see in ourselves is just sin and, and failure. But we are glad to acknowledge that we would have perished a thousand times over if Jesus hadn't been our Savior, our Shepherd, and our Shield. Did you track with that? That's really sweet. And there's more in that, that thing, but we'll leave it at that. Third point, covenantal future, verses 16 to 29. We'll hit this fairly quickly. So then they, journaled, they journeyed from Bethel, and they were still some distance from Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Um, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor, and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, don't fear, you have another son. And back in chapter 30, she had called her first son Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So here the Lord is fulfilling that prayer, that, that longing. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand, son of my strength. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel, see now the text is calling him Israel, not Jacob, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Ugh. So this isn't just unbridled lust. It's actually worse than that. This is about power and politics. It's a challenge to his father's leadership. By doing this, he was ensuring that Rachel's handmaid, okay, the servant of the favored wife, because Rachel had died, can't take Leah's place as the chief wife. So he's basically trying to take leadership over from his father. It's really ugly. But this backfires on him, and as a result, he's cursed at the end of Genesis. Before Jacob dies, he, he says this, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruit of my strengths, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So the 12 sons are listed, verses 23 to 26, and then 27 says, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, where Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram, Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. And this is supposed to flag us to the faithfulness of God, because back in chapter 28, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I will go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Um, so he did come to his father in peace. God was faithful to all his promises. So throughout the book of Genesis, 
we see over and over again all these threats to the covenant, barrenness and death and sin and military threats and just all kinds of mess and the ebbs and flows of the unfaithfulness of God's people. In fact, that's the biggest obstacle to the fulfillment of the covenant is the depravity of the people of God. So here we are at this major transition, Isaac's death, Rachel's death, and the shift is going to move to the sons and then to Joseph. So what's the future of the covenant? Like, it's threatened. It just, Jacob is going to die. Reuben's doing crazy stuff. Well, just as God brought Jacob faithfully to Isaac, fulfilled that promise, he will continue to faithfully carry his people through. But the failures that we see over and over again kind of leave us with this longing for a leader who will be faithful and true and will be able to lead God's people and not let them down. Reuben's disqualified. Simeon and Levi are disqualified. Last chapter, they killed all the men in Shechem. Judah? Is he going to be the new leader? Well, yes and no, right? From the tribe of Judah. So the book of Genesis leaves us longing for the Messiah, longing for the new covenant And that's actually what we celebrate this morning at this table, is covenant renewal. The main obstacle to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises is the sin of his own people. (laughs) So isn't it beautiful that the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Infidelity, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the ultimate gracious and loving initiative that God took was in the gift of his son. God initiates. He comes and rescues us and seeks and saves the lost. And then we can respond because he raises us from the dead spiritually and he puts his spirit within us, writes his law on our hearts. So this table is about covenant renewal. How kind of God that he built into the rhythm of our lives a regular participation in covenant renewal. In fact, it struck me, like, what's the primary meaning of this table? It's not, man, we really need to double down on our recommitment. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the table, it's you proclaim his death until he comes. You say to one another, we remind ourselves, God took the initiative. God did it all. It's finished. He's going to be faithful to all of his promises. That's what we're feeding on. His grace, his faithfulness. And then in the strength of that grace, we can respond. We, we go, ah, what am I doing? Trying to satisfy my thirst and hunger. At, you know, the table of these idols, cast it away. Puh! I want to feed on Jesus. What do you need to go? Puh! this morning so that you can feed on Jesus. That's exactly what you do as you come to the table is, Lord Jesus, you are everything. You are bread and living water. 
satisfy me in you. Thank you for paying for all my wretched idolatry. I want to feed on your grace this morning. Renew the covenant, not because I can fix things, but because you have taken the initiative over and over and over again, and you offer yourself to me again this morning. So if the men who are going to serve can come forward, let's examine our hearts and cast down our idols and then eat and drink with glad and thankful hearts because we've got such an amazing God who is just loves to take the initiative to renew the covenant with us and give us more grace. All right? So if you have come home, if Jesus is your shepherd and your savior and you have turned from your sin and trusted in him, receiving this awesome grace, then you are welcome to the table to eat and drink and be strengthened and encouraged in that kind of covenant renewal grace. If you're not sure yet, if you're not a, a believer in Jesus, you're not trusting him, that's okay. We're glad that you're here. Continue to just ponder the things that you've heard this morning, and I'd encourage you to reach out to the Lord. Pray that he would make himself real to you and that he would save you. So let me pray, and then we will distribute both the bread and the cup and hold them until everyone's served, and then we'll participate together. Oh God, we thank you that you are so merciful and gracious, that you are full of grace and truth, and we see it most fully and finally and perfectly and abundantly in the Lord Jesus who gave his life to rescue us from ourselves and our sin. So help us to see your grace this morning, your initiative, and help us to respond and cast down the idols, anything that's keeping us from faithfulness to you, and help us to worship you with glad and sincere hearts. Pray in Jesus' name.